Hey guys, welcome back. This is video number five on the channel. And in today's video, we're gonna be doing another lecture analysis. Um, we're gonna be doing a deep dive into Manley Hall's lecture titled Helena Blavatsky and the Secret Doctrine. I wanna set the stage a little bit, uh, just to give a little bit more context before we go into the meat of what this uh, today's lecture is gonna be about. So I wanna point out an allegory from the Bible, actually. In the Bible, there's an allegory called the Tower of Babel. And I'm not gonna get into the details of what the allegory says, but the sort of gist of it or the theme of it is the idea that mankind once had a shared language. And because they had a shared language, there was a shared understanding between individuals. There was a method for people to communicate and to understand each other in a way that we're lacking now. So the theme of the Tower of Babel is that now there's a confusion of tongues which means that mankind on sort of a macro level has been divided into many different groups with their own languages, has been divided into many different religions with their own branches. Even scientifically, we can say that our science has been divided into many different specializations. So there's a confusion of tongues between all these different groups because not all of them have come to a sort of agreement on what the fundamentals of the sort of essential questions of life are. So to bring this back to our central focus here, and which is defining and building a framework for what philosophy is, in a way, philosophy is a, a beautiful case study of this, how this Tower of Babel allegory works in modern life. So if you go on Amazon or if you go to your local bookstore or library and you go to the philosophy section, you're going to find a bunch of different books by a bunch of different authors. And they all have, advocate sort of different ways of thinking and they all sort of come to different conclusions. So... As somebody who's coming into this situation, who is attempting to establish and build an understanding of what philosophy is and what the lineage of philosophy is, it's where do you begin? You have a bunch of people disagreeing, and it can be confusing to buy four different books on philosophy and get four different answers. So what you're left with is a situation where you have to decide. You have to take the position that I'm going to build my own framework and that with this state of mind, you're looking at all these other authors and their opinions as being frameworks that each of those people advocate. And when you build your framework, you're gonna to attempt to learn from um, and be stimulated by all of them. So you're not gonna necessarily wanna take the view as I'm gonna find the one person who I can agree with and just adopt their position. You're gonna take the position that you are going to um, take on the onus of building your own model or map of what, uh, of how the world works or what the sort of dynamics of reality that underlie your own existence, what those are. So that's going to be a responsibility that you're taking on. And this is the only way that you can, I think, get over a situation that you're confronted with a confusion of tongues is you have to take on the responsibility of yourself for building your own pattern of thinking, for building your own framework. So I think this whole situation is actually the product of a number of false assumptions. But one of the central ones is the idea that there is no gold standard or no, there is no sort of foundation by which you can evaluate all these different people's claims to what philosophy is and how a philosopher looks at the world. So if you have a, a situation where a bunch of people disagree, what you really need is a sort of gold standard or a central archetype concept that you're going to compare. That's the basis of comparison uh, by which you're analyzing all these different claims. Philosophy is not a word or a concept that has a vague and nebulous origin. We actually know where it comes from. It comes from a particular person, which is a figure named Pythagoras. It comes at a certain time and place, 
which is the 600 BC era. During the 600 BC era, alongside Pythagoras, who is again the corner of the term, alongside Pythagoras around the world, we find uh, what's now often char characterized as the era of the great teachers. So you had Pythagoras, you had Buddha, you had Lao Tzu, you had Confucius, um, you had this uh, figure named Zoroaster, you had another figure named Quetzalcoatl, I'm sure there's maybe even others, but during this one era is sort of the world of great teachers and in their own way, even though Pythagoras is the one that coined the term, in, the, in a way this is really the era of world philosophy. All these teachers, even though they were in different contexts, cultural contexts and use, were using different languages and, and sort of mytho mythological structures to draw off of, the ultimate message of all these world teachers was the same. And so that central message is actually what philosophy is. It's not purely only what Pythagoras taught, but it's sort of this idea that there's a world uh, philosophy. And so if we can understand what the central message is of that group of teachers of that time and place, and if we can track how that message has evolved over time, what the lineage is, what the lineage is of it, then I think that becomes the gold standard by which we can evaluate people's claims to what is philosophy and how we should interpret philosophy. And this brings us to today's lecture, which is an analysis of Manley Hall uh, and his lecture on Madame Blavatsky and her classic, The Secret Doctrine. So in the introduction, I mentioned how the tradition of true philosophy has been, or I hinted at anyway, been passed down through a lineage. And in my analysis, the modern descent of that lineage goes through two, goes through several different prominent thinkers of this sort of modern period. But I would say the two most prominent and also the two that I am probably best positioned to talk on because they're, they're, they're the ones I've studied the most and I'm most familiar with. Um, are the figures Helena Blavatsky of the 19th century and then, Hel and then Manly P. Hall of the 20th century. So in this lecture, we're going to be really looking at both of them because Manly Hall is doing the lecture and he's doing it on the topic of Helena Blavatsky, which is somebody that he would even acknowledge is his sort of immediate predecessor, that they're both part of the same lineage. And when you do an analysis of both of their books, uh, The Secret Doctrine for Blavatsky and... Um, the Secret Teaching of All Ages, or really any of Manly Hall's, P. Hall's books, but if you just look at that one, for example, his most famous one and her most famous one, the central theme and thesis of the books are identical, and they do similar things in terms of bringing in uh, supporting evidence from different systems of, historical systems of philosophy, going back thousands of years. So they do both do a comparative analysis, and so we should both understand that they're part of the same lineage. So to start things off, the first clip I want to play is one uh, where Mr. Hall reads um, sort of a, a quote from The Secret Doctrine directly that's sort of like a thesis statement for the whole work. Um, so it describes the sort of main objectives of the books. So keep in mind as you're here, as you're listening to these, that because Manley Hall and Blavatsky are in the same lineage, you can sort of distill the idea that these principles that she's saying about she, these principles that she's stating about the secret doctrine are also ones that are applicable to understanding and analyzing Manley Hall's work. So throughout this whole lecture, as we get information and receive information about Helena Blavatsky and the, and the esoteric sort of lineage that she represents, in many ways Manley Hall's also talking about a tradition that he's a part of, and you can infer a lot of things 
that he says about Helen Blavatsky are actually also true of him. So I'd like to just read a few lines from the original preface of the Secret Doctrine to point out some of the elements with which he was primarily concerned. The aim of this work may be thus stated, to show that nature is not a fortuitous concurrence of atoms, and to assign to man his rightful place in the scheme of the universe, to rescue from degradation the archaic truths which are the basis of all religions, and to uncover to some extent the fundamental unity from which they all spring, finally to show that the occult side of nature has never been approached by the science of modern civilization. All right, so let's just recap that. Uh, so he's saying that the essential aim of the book, The Secret Doctrine, uh, but you could also extrapolate and say esoteric philosophy in general, is to reveal three essential ideas. One of them is the reality of the unity of God. Um, from that, you make the deduction that, number two, the fundamental brotherhood of mankind. And number three, and this is a critical feature, is that there exists a sort of secret method or an esoteric method by which the latter, mankind, can be integrated and united with the former, which is the unity of God. So there are disciplines of meditation and realization, which are what philosophy prepares you for. And it's sort of the culmination of philosophy is the uh, implementation of these methods. Um, and so the beginning of philosophy is a sort of long, sort of the period of preparation. And that process is what we overviewed in the previous video when we talked about the idea of attaining the philosophic stillness. From here, uh, Manley Hall moves into a discussion of the sort of background context of Blavatsky's work, how it was produced, uh, what were the influences. So this is an epistemological analysis. So in these clips, he's going to be talking about what is the sort of contextual background and intellectual background um, that Blavatsky drew on for the production of The Secret Doctrine. To understand The Secret Doctrine, is a very large order. Uh, it has to be read many, many times. It also has to be studied very carefully. And certain barriers of terminology have to be one by one overcome by familiarity with early languages. I think we can say, however, uh, that uh, it is built upon a certain ancient concept, a concept which does show through most of the primitive writings of the religious peoples of antiquity, uh, particularly of the Mesopotamian area and the Far East. Many persons have tried to work out, either in harmony with or in conflict with Madame Blavatsky's own premises, just what the basis of her presentation of the Eastern tradition might be. Madam, on a number of occasions, admitted that personally, in her religious persuasion, she was very much uh, inclined to Buddhism. But she clearly points out in the secret doctrine 
that the secret doctrine is not Buddhism. And on this ground, most Buddhist sects will concur. To many Buddhist groups, the secret doctrine is as mysterious as it is to Christendom. Yet there is obvious fact in the background of this which must cause us to suspect that to a large measure at least the presentation of the material follows certain development of Asiatic belief. Whatever might be Madame's essential allegiances, when in the presentation of her material she gropes for terms or attempts to find fortuitous analogies, she most frequently turns either to Buddhism or Reformed Hinduism. We very seldom find her searching for her terms outside of this area. Also, her tendency is to bring other forms of knowledge, Chinese, Chaldean, Egyptian, Greek, into this pattern, drawing them toward this central uh, focus. Madame Blavatsky, studying among the American Indians, observing the ruined monuments and symbols of Central America, wandering in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia, studying in the great palace of Tashilampu, talking and discoursing with the most learned yogins and Vedantic students of India, traveling everywhere in the Muslim world, in the Christian world, in the Buddhist world and in the Brahmin world, was convinced that she had discovered clearly the landmarks of this esoteric discipline of life, by means of which man alone can come to the apperception of truth. So let's investigate the epistemological analysis that Nellie Hall is doing here. He is saying that the secret doctrine is sort of an integration and synthesis of many different streams of philosophy based on the idea that all these different systems and schools of philosophy uh, are structured as a two-part system. So there's an exoteric uh, outer part and then there's an esoteric or inner part. So what she's saying is that each of these major systems of religion have a esoteric branch to them that is by definition not well known, but does exist and there is historical literature, plenty of it, that alludes to this existence. Um, so it's not really controversial among scholars of this, but it is unknown to the majority of people, so it does seem as if it is controversial or, or it's speculative. It's actually a very well-developed field of thought that's gone back as far back as human scholarship has gone. It's just a matter of becoming aware of that tradition because it's not handed out to you. So now we're going to come to a little more of a controversial aspect of Blavatsky's sort of background into what she states about how the book that she wrote was produced and what the influences are. Blavatsky explicitly claims that she not only was a scholar of this esoteric tradition, but she was also actively in contact and was sort of a willing member of or a participant within the sort of esoteric philosophical sects that 
held and perpetuated the esoteric knowledge. Um, and her sort of sources for writing and producing this work were not only her own scholarship and her own sort of searching as an individual and intellectual quest, but was also heavily inspired through a direct contact and through direct communication with actual philosophical sects that were in uh, India. So she's very explicit about that. And she doesn't claim that this work is solely her production. She claims that it was a sort of joint project between her and this sort of esoteric order that she was in contact with. Non-specific to her case, I do conclude that there are esoteric orders um, and there are there is a tradition of esoteric knowledge and there is a possibility of individuals sort of non-transparently or non-openly being in contact with these esoteric orders and sort of carrying out deliberate objectives and fulfilling purposes on behalf of the order within society, sort of, I do believe it's possible for people to serve as instruments of this sort of secret organization or however you want to describe it. I do believe it exists based on my analysis and I do believe it's possible for people to uh, serve as instruments of that order. So I think that Blavatsky has just as much a case of anyone as being somebody who is actively uh, you could point to it and say they were actively uh, a sort of vessel or instrument of this philosophic order. And I would say equally Manley Hall is another example of somebody who I believe uh, was very, based on my analysis, was very uh, actively in contact and was working in, with, uh, in participation or in sort of uh, willing cahoots with um, esoteric orders. Who, who, you know, I'm not going to speculate on who, what those were or where they came from. So, again, these are things you, you don't have to take anybody's word for. You can actually delve into a, a sort of nuanced analysis of it. The point is always not that you look to accept what anybody else is saying, but you're building a map of reality that's going to inform you about what's possible, about what's real. Um, and the idea is that you're going to eventually try to step into that map you're building once you have built it to a situation where you feel like it actually is sort of commensurate with, with the laws of the world, that you've actually begun to understand uh, what sort of law is and apply that to your own life, you're gonna step into your own model and with the belief and understanding that you can actually bring that reality into um, actuality. In other words, you can sort of individuate or you can actually evolve to higher uh, experiences and states of mind and consciousness. Um, so I'm not claiming to be an expert or perfect at this application. It's a life process. There are certainly vices that I have that I'm very aware of and I'm sort of strategically uh, working to overcome them. Um, so for me, it's a process. I'm not saying that I'm looking at this from the finish line. I'm more saying that I'm in the thicket of it with everybody else. But I do feel like there is value to the work that I've done this past 10 years in terms of framing this whole situation, in terms of building a model of ontology, um, in terms of understanding what the epistemological foundations of human like perspective and, and knowledge is, 
And so my whole thing is I think that I can be of service to get this information out there. My whole approach has never changed in the fact that I have a sort of social purpose in mind, um, revolving the field of organizations and sort of trying to transform uh, a sort of mindset of management. That's where I think I can have a very targeted impact um, and hopefully be a, a sort of mechanism of, of social change in a positive direction. Um, I've always been interested in the idea of like what's post-capitalist, but the capitalist uh, uh, sort of model, um, the nation state model that we've been in for a long time, obviously is something that is not going to be forever. So what's after it? How do we think about that? How can we use organizations and management as a vessel to enact that change? So that's actually the goal of all this. And that's how I got into all this. So uh, just to get back to the idea that uh, Helen Lebowski is saying that she is a sort of instrument of an esoteric philosophical sect from the East, uh, Manley Hall is going to sort of frame that whole situation for us in this next clip. Now, how did Madame Blavatsky come into contact with the information by which this uh, work, these volumes, were made possible? Here we come into a highly controversial area, an area for which at the present time uh, there is no final scientific point of view. She insists and wrote and stated clearly that the knowledge which she presented was set forth on the premise or foundation that she was the writer of a book but not the author of it. She disclaimed, however, any psychic mystery in connection with the work. The work. She simply held it to be a fact, to be accepted or rejected by the reader according to his own convictions, that the original material was communicated to her by advanced teachers, by leaders in the esoteric system of Asiatic knowledge. In other words, that this information came directly from initiated members of the secret schools of Eastern philosophy. Now here, of course, we come into a problem that even yet has not been solved to everyone's satisfaction. As yet, it has not been possible to so clearly and definitely identify these teachers that no question whatsoever as to their identity or their existence remains. These teachers were not generally known. They were not generally available to scholars. Uh, they did not act as exchange professors in any university. Uh, they taught in their own ancient Eastern way. And uh, there is no question on the part of Madame Blavatsky that these teachers were real, that they communicated with her, that they taught her, that she regarded herself as their messenger or representative, and that through their assistance the writings of the secret doctrine and other esoteric papers of the Theosophical Society uh, were made possible. 
All right, now let's go into a little more about um, what the nature is of how esoteric philosophy looks at the world and how it actually analyzes what the difference is between um, esoteric knowledge and exoteric. In other words, there is an exoteric doctrine that has arisen from the observation of the externals of things. And there is an esoteric doctrine which has been per perpetuated through the contemplation of the eternal and internal forces operating in the universe. There has always been a few persons who have possessed the power to demonstrate these extrasensory faculties to a degree. There has been always somebody carrying on research or experimentation in this area. There has also always existed in the world a group of people who by the peculiar validity of their mystical dedications to truth were able to break through the veil that the mind of the scholar could not penetrate. And the scriptures of the world, including our own and the old Jewish scriptures, all indicate the existence of prophets, of wise ones, of learned and good persons who communed with God, or who went forth into the wilderness and fasted and prayed and received revelation. That therefore we do have a fairly substantial body of evidence indicating that man by a certain kind of life by a certain devotion or dedication, by conduct rather than by concept, is able to attain an intimate uh, a perception of spiritual mysteries. Not that he shall attain them fully or completely, but that he does penetrate far enough to prove that there are powers within himself which can break through the boundaries set up by a materialistic way of life, and that he can gradually come to know and to experience conditions of consciousness, states of being, areas of activity that are closed to the objective physical sensory perceptions that in every important religion of the world, both of civilized and uncivilized peoples, the same essential belief has been held, and that long before man knew what theology was, he realized that the essence of religion was the unfolding of faculties within himself by which, a, by which knowledge alone could be attained, and that all knowledge must finally be brought to fruition by the release of conscious powers or faculties within the person. Basically, he's painting a picture that there's this, this quality of inner and outer, or those who know and those who don't know, is actually archetypal to our species. It's um, it's hardwired into the way humans work, human civilization works. And what we're going to try to get at is why. Why is that true? It's one of the mysteries. It's one of the, the fundamental things that you're trying to understand is, is why. Uh, in philosophy, that's what you're interested in. 
because you want, if you know why, then that will give you a, a sense of purpose of what you're trying to fulfill. You're trying to fulfill the own why of your own existence. He basically is saying that philosophy is an institution. And so the idea is that during, the, during a sort of so-called golden age, that, the sort of, that philosophy becomes the dominant institution and it becomes the sort of governor of uh, how we si- govern and civilize our, ourselves as a collective group. But during the dark ages, philosophy uh, becomes obscured and instead you have sort of false rulers come into, or false ideas ascend to a position of leadership. And during those periods, mankind goes astray. So the reason that philosophy is institutional is because mankind, the role of man in nature, is not to just be an advanced form of animal, but actually humanity is a kingdom of its own with unique properties different from the other kingdoms of nature. And the role of man within nature is to know. And by man, I mean mankind. So the role of man in nature is to know. And so the process of man's evolution is to go from a state of not knowing to a state of knowing. You're, you're ultimately integrating your own life story into this larger grand narrative of life on earth. And, and that way you're distilling what your own purpose and your own role is within this ecosystem of life that you're a part of. So now we're going to play a little bit more where Manly Hall continues this train of thought. That what we call essential knowledge has always been known, has always existed, and always will. On the basis of the esoteric tradition, Madame Blavatsky affirms that the answer lies in the cultivation of faculties latent in man, that these faculties have always been known, that arts and sciences for their cultivation have always been known, but that the secrets of these arts or mysteries have not been generally communicated for the reason that they constitute not only the most advanced possible form of knowledge, but to the measure the most dangerous of all forms of knowledge. For they bestow upon the possessor of them all of the power and authority and influence which absolute knowledge can confer. And that in order that such knowledge should be made available, it is first necessary that the uh, aspirant to such knowledge should demonstrate conclusively that they are beyond and above the abuse of what they know. So again, the idea is that philosophy and its sort of archetypal breakdown of esoteric and exoteric, that it's hardwired into the species, it's archetypal for the human race. So what he's saying is that sort of mysticism uh, or the attainment of esoteric knowledge is something that uh, humanity innately has the capacity to experience. So in order to sort of explain further the sort of archetypal dynamic of exoteric and esoteric and how, and to sort of make the case that all the great systems of world philosophy had two branches an exoteric and an esoteric. Manley Hall's going to give us a, a sort of brief case study um, on Buddhism, and he's going to reference Christianity as well. So he's going to say that there were uh, 
esoteric and exoteric branches of both of these, even though most people by definition or by default would only be aware of the outer form. It wouldn't even be aware that they could be looking for, there could be an inner form. So this is what we're trying to do here is introduce this idea to you and give it to you in a way that's a, you have a framework. You don't have to just hear this information and not have any basis for it. I'm building out for you a whole framework by which you can analyze and interpret statements like these. It was taught from the very beginning that Gautama Buddha's essential teaching was divided into two broad schools. If we study the sutras or the sacred books of Buddhism, certainly those prior to the last great reformation under Mahayana, we find that Buddha is a strict moralist. We find that he refuses under any condition to explore the abstractions of cosmogony. He refuses to discuss the natures of deities, or the origins of worlds, or the developments of species, or types, or kinds, or races. He declines entirely uh, to expand any concept of the future state of man other than such concept as relates to the final extinction of negative individuality in the Mahaparanavanic state. He is concerned primarily only with the problem of man, and with man only in the aspect of human suffering, its cause and cure. Buddha's, uh, Buddha took the public attitude that his only problem and the only problem that the world had to face, and face head-on with every bit of courage that was available, the problem was how man could civilize himself, how the human being could rise from the ignorance, selfishness, and fear which dominated his life and establish a firm inward life upon adequate value. This was Buddha's principal concern. From the very beginning of his philosophy, it was evident that a second school rose in the contemplation of Buddhist philosophy. We find in the Bible the same implication in the New Testament, where Jesus is said to have taught the multitude in parables but to his disciples he taught certain other things. These certain other things have always been assumed to be the mysteries of his faith, the esoteric part of the Christian religion. And it is this part that the Gnosis claimed to have possessed, and which is now uh, being given some further consideration as a result of the discovery of the Gnostic library at Chenoboskin, Egypt. But in Buddhism, it was assumed, affirmed, maintained, that Buddha taught his disciples, or his ahats, these certain other things, that to those whom he regarded as ready, he gave a knowledge of universals, that he also gave a knowledge of the great forces and processes of creation by means of which worlds are brought out of chaos, and the great systems of evolutionary procedure that have been preserved 
for two theosophists through the secret doctrine in their famous uh, concepts of rounds and races. That this esoteric doctrine in Buddhism did exist, there seems every reason to affirm. Buddhism is a, a living example of the point that Madame Blavatsky attempted and affirmed that she could prove, namely that there has been and is in the principal religions of the world a solid tradition that goes back thousands of years to the simple effect that religion is both an internal and an external mystery, that there has always been a secret or esoteric instruction, that this instruction is true, and that this instruction covers not only the religious world, but contains a full statement of the nature of the material universe, its laws and energies, and therefore covers the entire area normally assigned to science. That therefore there is not only a science of nature, but a science of human nature and a science of divine nature. That the so-called esoteric tradition is the one and ultimate science, the science of sciences, through an understanding of which all other mysteries are solved. Just to re-emphasize here, he says that the esoteric tradition is the one and ultimate science, the science of sciences. And then he also says that this esoteric tradition has always been known, meaning that the knowledge that mankind needs to progress further in his own evolution is knowledge that is existent within mankind's own unconscious, sort of the collective unconscious. So as mankind evolves, it takes this potentiality which is in it in an unexpressed state, i.e. it's in its unconscious, and the idea is to make what's unconscious conscious. And as this happens, humanity evolves into more and more advanced uh, states of being. And so mankind unlocks its own evolution through its un unfoldment. This is a much more dynamic uh, sort of Jungian psychology concept where we're understanding that evolution is taking place within the context of a sort of field of potential that expresses how evolution can proceed, particularly that how the evolution of one thing can proceed harmoniously with the evolution of all other things taking place around it. So that whole overall macro structures integrated on this level of the collective unconsciousness. And mankind's role in nature is to actually know and have access to the processes uh, and the sort of consciousness that maintains the whole system. And so the whole system of life on earth. So this is why we're taking an integrative systems look of life and looking at humanity's place within this overall system because we're making the point that the knowledge of this actually does exist archetypally within mankind's unconscious, the collective unconscious, and that what we're trying to do is release that knowledge from within ourselves in order to fulfill our own destiny within the great order of life that we're a part of. We are beginning to realize that somewhere in the background of man's consciousness experience, there was a gen general archetypal pattern. Man has within himself certain instinctive knowledge 
which he cannot always clearly express, a knowledge which perhaps is not even available to him for the most part, but a simple subjective realization of value. Through the contemplation of the systems of the higher tantra, it had been possible for the arhats, adepts, and lohans of the system to gradually restore the story of the universe and the story of man. That this knowledge essentially uh, came not from ordinary books, not from ordinary communication with other persons, but through inward meditation through the gradual strengthening of the resources of the person to the inner contemplation of the mysteries of universal procedure. If these disciplines were accurately followed, if the individual's interior faculties were properly opened, they were just as reliable in their own world as our ordinary sense perceptions are in the material world, and probably much more reliable. Through the contemplation of the systems of the higher tantra, it had been possible for the arhats, adepts, and lohans of the system to gradually restore the story of the universe and the story of man. That this knowledge essentially uh, came not from ordinary books, not from ordinary communication with other persons but through inward meditation, through the gradual strengthening of the resources of the person to the inner contemplation of the mysteries of universal procedure. If these disciplines were accurately followed, if the individual's interior faculties were properly opened, they were just as reliable in their own world as our ordinary sense perceptions are in the material world, and probably much more reliable. Therefore, nearly everyone working with abstract or creative philosophical or religious problems has difficulties with wording. There is no way in which we can be even reasonably sure that we can convey an abstract idea by means of words from one person to another. Zen does not even attempt it. Uh, rather taking the attitude that all communication of essential knowledge must be by internal, superphysical faculties. Essentially, he's saying that exoteric knowledge or knowledge that comes from the outside in is, he's framing it as knowledge of effects. And then he's saying that esoteric knowledge or knowledge that comes from within is how you get to an understanding of knowledge about causes. So until you can directly experience knowledge of cause through the release of esoteric experience or a mystical experience that gives you esoteric knowledge, until you have released that within yourself, you're limited to exoteric knowledge, which is knowledge that comes in through your sensory apparatus and is therefore cognized by your mind in this outside coming in fashion. We're limiting ourselves as a species um, in our development when we refuse to acknowledge that there's actually two epistemological routes that human beings can use to gain information and knowledge 
with which to use to inform how they're living on earth. One knowledge is one form of knowledge is exoteric, comes from the outside in and is associated with scientific analysis. And esoteric knowledge, which comes from within, he's saying that that is what that through that method you can gain access to a knowledge of causes. You're attaining direct experiential knowledge through this sort of mystical state of cause, where you're getting and receiving knowledge of the causes behind things. So the philosopher uses religion and science in order to synthesize his understanding of how cause is related to effect. So we observe effects and we're trying to understand what are the laws by which those effects are produced. And those laws, if you have knowledge about them, that is the knowledge of causes. And in the mystical experience, you experience a knowledge of causes. At least that's what Manley Hall's arguing in this framework. So we're going to pick back up. We're going to talk a little bit more about this theme of esoteric knowledge versus esoteric of esoteric knowledge versus exoteric knowledge. And he's going to do kind of a critical analysis of the idea that we are um, being ignorant in, the, in our assist, insistence that only the methods of science are valuable and applicable to understanding what the nature of reality is. That we have to take an intelligent look about what is religion, actually. We are still locked, therefore, in the belief that all knowledge must be attained by one slow, plodding, miserable, inconsistent technique. That we must gradually know or learn through forever setting up research projects of a particular kind or nature. That we must learn and know by pounding upon the outside and surfaces of things rather than to recognize that while research projects are useful and very helpful, their success is determined largely by the point of view upon which they are built. A research project which says at the beginning that it can only advance according to rules already generally accepted and that it must come to no conclusions inconsistent with present knowledge, it is not going to achieve anything. But this essential knowledge by its very nature, however, is not acceptable to any individual or group of individuals whose philosophy of life is built essentially upon materialism. That it is not man's inability to know that is his stumbling block. It is man's unwillingness to unlearn that which is not true, but which he has come to accept over long periods of time. A hasty acceptance of opinions or attitudes that are not substantial, a willing allegiance to a pattern of knowledge which is not factual. These attitudes lock the individual toward the, toward the larger universe of the infinite probabilities of things. Man, therefore, has darkened his own insight by insisting that he already knows consciously things which he does not know. 
He insists that knowledge is to be derived from the common experience of other persons like himself, and that if enough persons who do not know agree upon something, this something then becomes a known fact. The final solution to the mystery of knowledge lies in the disciplining and cultivating of a gamut of extrasensory perception, and without which the individual plods desperately against areas of darkness or areas of chaos which he cannot organize with the faculties available to him as an automatic person. The faculties that we presently possess are not adequate for our understanding of the causal universe. That although we may be able uh, to extend our domain uh, throughout the surface of nature, that we may be able to travel to other planets, that we may force our conquests into space itself, that man's present uh, group of faculties limits him, binds him, holds him strictly to a certain condition of the universe which is called matter. That beyond matter and such energies as display themselves in matter, or are rather obviously revealed through matter, outside of this man cannot cope with the universe. And when he copes with energies, even those that are revealed through matter, he can dis discover their appearances, their consequences, as the wind moving upon the surface of water can be noted from the fact that it moves the water, but the wind itself cannot be seen. In the same way, wherever we come upon the operation of energies in matter, we can see the consequences of the activity of energy, but we cannot see or estimate or fathom the mystery of that energy itself. A point in case, of course, is electricity. We know what it does, we do not know what it is. And even the greatest scientists today have hesitates to attempt a formal definition of a commodity that is now used carelessly and easily throughout the world. We seem to possess it, but we do not possess any real knowledge of what it is. We seem to conquer the world, but having conquered it, we suddenly awaken and find that we have no understanding of what the world is. We have our own existence. We live and grow and suffer and die but finally come to the conclusion that we do not know even our own identity. That we cannot find the answer by loading the mind with objective phenomena. That we can advance sciences, certainly, but these sciences advance on levels. They do not lead us to the next superior thing. They lead us only like the will of the wisp into some infinite, diverse area of speculation, they cannot bring us back again to the core of being. Here, Manley Hall is sort of making a case that, that the majority of mankind is suffering from a type of groupthink, which means that, or implying that 
there is a sort of there are have been normatized and sort of institutionalized certain patterns of thinking, certain ways of interpreting the world and imagining what's true and not true and what's possible. That there's certain false patterns of thinking about that that have become perpetuated over long periods of time. So there are sort of become uh, these normative assumed beliefs about the world, but they're not actually grounded in fact. And part of what's happened is that that group think is has made its way into science. So science has adopted this sort of group think position that the only thing that exists is the surface of things, is the physical structure of reality, and that knowledge of effect is the only thing possible for us to have and investigate. And because it's made that assumption, it can't, not just science, but society in general, it can't think coherently about cause and effect. So instead of thinking coherently about cause and effect and trying to understand why certain effects happen because certain causes have been put into place. So we end up acting unintelligently as we approach the task of solving our problems. Because really the trajectory of problem solving becomes managing effects. And we see that in health and we see that in public policy and we see that in social and environmental policy. It's assumed that we can't even approach cause we can only look at effect and we can only manage on the basis of effect. And so Manley Hall is saying that that's a false pattern of thinking and that we can never find the answers to our own problems or to the deeper questions of life by restricting our analysis uh, strictly to this sort of false understanding about what science is and how science can actually be applied. Because remember, there are, there's this whole realm of internal life psychology that can be and should be and must be brought into integration with the rest of the scientific literature. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to overcome this groupthink situation that's sort of where people are locked in an idea that's sort of materialistic and based on a, a, a false organization of knowledge. And it's really something that is perpetuated over long periods of time within especially Western civilization. So you become a, you're a victim to it by default growing up in this society that we live in because it's the sort of way of our world um, and the default pattern of thinking. And you have to actually work actively to overcome and rid yourself of these false ideas in order that you can learn and understand and grow towards an understanding of what actually is real, what actually is possible. And he's going to make some very interesting points here. He's basically going to lay out a model where he says that that mankind is not completely evolving without any guidance or without a sort of leadership structure. So what he's going to be saying is that these great advances of civilization have actually been, that, we, that humanity has gone through and is currently going through and is going through certainly right now, that these processes are always correlated with the activity of this, these esoteric philosophic sects. So these groups are actually, because they're the sort of custodians of esoteric knowledge, they are sort of like the hidden governance structure of humanity. And he's going to kind of make the case that humanity is gradually going through it has always gone through its evolutionary history is the sort of dis the story of this 
pattern. He's going to make the case that mankind is going through a collective initiation process. And that this collective initiation process is archetypal. It's the process that mankind goes through as it transcends um, or as it completes the story of going from a state of not knowing to a state of knowing. And that story is the story of the collective initiation of mankind. And that, let's not get too hung up on words. We can frame that many different ways, but essentially it's the idea that mankind's evolution is following an archetypal story or an archetypal dis, uh, ascent that's part of the laws and patterns of nature. So mankind is a kingdom in nature and he has his own story and place and purpose to fulfill within this larger scheme. So here, Manly Hall is going to talk about how esoteric knowledge has been gradually seeded into society at certain critical key points uh, during its evolutionary ascent and that mankind goes through different stages when it becomes both internally more prepared to handle and deal with and utilize this knowledge, but also because knowledge has been specifically seeded and given and planted and allowed to take root within civilization so that new patterns can blossom by use of this knowledge. So we're really making the case that this whole phenomena of collective initiation is part of the natural growth pattern of our species. It couldn't actually be any other way. For these schools at various times in their development, uh, finding that humanity by its own evolutionary process had made certain natural attainments, released levels of this knowledge, releasing mostly such levels as had immediate utility for those evolving forms of life that required them. It is this gradual revelation that gave us, for instance, mathematics, gave us astronomy, gave us music, gave us by degrees the secrets of ancient medicine and law, made possible a variety of achievements for men. The great moral and spiritual codes of the world were originally part of the mystery tradition. But as man reached the point where he needed them, they were revealed to him by the anointed and initiated teachers, saviors, sages, prophets, and seers of his race. According to Madame Blavatsky, the time came in the closing years of the 19th century when the tremendous advancement of material science when a new kind of world coming into existence, built upon, unfortunately, an almost adamantine materialism, required certain further directives. The, uh, the adepts of the Eastern tradition uh, resolved to make a revelation of knowledge. The book was released to the world uh, through the uh, work of a person as thorough as any other person, as subject to curious moods and eccentricities, as controversial and in some ways as inconsistent as anybody else. It was a work which could be rejected with enthusiasm by any individual who wanted to pick it apart. It was a work which could be utterly meaningless to the person who did not want to understand it. It also could be utterly meaningless to an individual who was not interested enough to find out what it meant. 
It brought no salvation or enlightenment to anyone on a platter. It gave no assurance of anything. It was simply set up as a point of inquiry. It stood there to intrigue those who were already willing and inclined to be intrigued. It could also lead the scholar to a further examination of things that he already wanted to know, or it could cause him to declare that it was the greatest monument of superstition in modern times and cast it in the wastebasket. This was exactly what was intended. It could not be dogmatic. It was not a revelation and was never meant to be a revelation. So when Manley Hall teaches us that esoteric knowledge is gradually seeded into society sort of through various organizations and messengers sort of dedicated to the purpose, he then says that he's telling you these things with such clarity uh, and with such sort of comprehensive understanding because he and also Blavatsky were both messengers and were vehicles of this pattern that they're teaching you about. So that's how you're integrating ontology and epistemology. They're saying they are instruments of this purpose, that they're also giving you this whole framework about how to understand it. So they're telling you how to understand their own teachings. They're telling you how to understand themselves. And they're giving you a framework that you can evaluate them through. All right, so now let's go uh, deeper into what is the actual ontological map that is brought out and disseminated in these esoteric teachings. And then we're also going to look at, within that larger context, what is the place of humanity in that overall structure. So it's like the story of mankind and the story of the universe are both told in a way that they're integrated together in a very um, coherent way. We also find the cosmogonies of the Vedas. We find the ancient doctrines of the Avastas the teachings of the Chinese and the Buddhists relating to the origin of the universe. We are confronted with the problem which has always been the root of all cosmological uh, uncertainty, namely the possibility of a creation emerging from the absence of itself. How did the beginning begin? How was that which was not to engender that which was? Can we ever assume that there was a state in which nothing existed? All of these speculations are finally brought together under the concept of the Tibetan tantric system. And uh, the great laws of cycles, the great processes of the days and nights of Brahma, the emergence of the universe as the great breath, the setting up of the great geometric patterns in space by which worlds were generated, all of these processes are discussed and described. Out of this entire concept comes this tremendous pattern of the living universe, of a universe extending far beyond anything that we can conceive a universe of systems upon systems, all of them essentially great units of consciousness. 
and that from the basic consciousness of each of these units, vast systems of creation emerge. These systems always within the consciousness which created them. And within all these patterns, the infinite divergence of individuality within unity. He's talking about a universe of systems within systems that comes together to create one vast universal system that is life, that this living is a living universe. Here's going to focus in on mankind and tell us about mankind's place within a living universe. Out of this tremendous cosmogony of things emerges esoteric anthropology, the emergence of man, his development in nature, the great question that science is still ponderating and will probably ponder for some time, namely the relationship between the person and his body. The great story of anthropology is therefore the involution of man, which is the descent of consciousness into form, and the gradual obscuration of consciousness by form. Finally, evolution, or the gradual restoration of consciousness from form. Evolution being essentially at this time a twofold procedure. Here a procedure based upon the long unfolding path of future growth, by which over a vast period of time man will gradually collect the fragments of his own consciousness within his own personality, unite them, bring them into harmony, and gradually create an abstract vehicle or vehicle for the expression of that consciousness rather than the concrete mind that he now uses. The second way, according to the esoteric tradition, is that the individual shall achieve evolution or the release of consciousness from matter by the disciplines of the esoteric schools. These esoteric disciplines constituting the meditative and contemplative disciplines of the Kala Chakra, or the great school of the turning of the wheel of time. The turning of the wheel in this case simply represents the reverse motion or the reversal of that motion by means of which man has been drawn into a state of materiality. As he is drawn into matter by a certain motion, as Plato says, he is by the reversal of this motion able to extricate himself from matter. So here, Manley Hall's again, he's emphasizing this institutional view of philosophy, the fact that it's sort of hardwired as an archetype into the fundamental structure of the human species, the idea that humanity evolves through two mechanisms. One is uh, evolution by natural growth, uh, which is sort of nature impelling humanity in a certain direction. In um, that way, in this path, mankind's being evolved without his own consciousness uh, or without his own conscious participation in that evolution. So that's evolution by uh, sort of the long, slow path of painful growth, painful through the, that you're learning through experience, but sort of unwittingly. And then he says that there's a second path, that's the route of evolution by philosophy. And it's this idea that, that the actual pattern of nature that is impelling mankind towards evolution, that pattern can't actually be known ahead of time and but in order to know that 
the individual has to gradually um, enforce a type of discipline upon himself. And the successful, and so this disciplining, self-disciplining process is a, is a process. And at the culmination of it, or the end of the process, uh, you attain the end, you, you attain to the ends that nature is bringing us to, but you do it ahead of schedule. And because you do it ahead of schedule, you're able to become a servant and an instrument of nature's fulfillment of the plan. And you're able to try to bring humanity into conscious awareness and participation within the fulfillment of this plan. That's what philosophy is intended to do as an institution. So now Manley Hall is going to make the case that um, the goal of philosophy as an institution is to bring and herald the awakening of mankind. The entire release of the psychic entity is a conscious living achievement of that which for most persons is possible only in the transition of death. Therefore the prophets of old are said to have been taken to God without death, because actually and esoterically the ritual of initiation and the ritual of the death ceremonies were regarded as equally symbolic of the same psychic procedure in man. Thus the release of man from body is a resurrection, a birth anew into a psychic existence, an existence in which soul power dominates all other considerations. And the point of uh, importance being that man will ultimately move his center of function, his center of awareness or his center of polarization from the physical focus to the psychic focus. When he does this, he will find that he is living in a new world. He will find that gradually the old world will fade away. So within nature, the purpose and role of mankind is to know. And this is the impetus for his evolutionary ascent in which he strives to attain the state of knowing. So in between not knowing and knowing is a long, painful, often, but illuminate, slowly illuminating process of knowing, coming to know. Really, mankind's purpose is to learn and understand the law. And it, until he understands it, the law will operate upon him, but it will do so painfully because he'll be out of sync and har- out of sync and out of harmony with it, because he hasn't learned to intelligently follow the law. He doesn't. He can't put into practice what he doesn't understand. So man strives to know, or mankind strives to know, uh, in order to f- obey and fulfill the law. The point for the individual or the purpose of the individual is to release esoteric knowledge and attain to a knowledge of causes so that you can govern and manage how those causes are translated into effect within your life. So you're trying to change your relationship with law, law being understood as the cause of the effects that we observe. So mankind's role is to learn the law. This is why he has to raise himself up uh, from a default position of not knowing the individual has to learn through an active effort it has to be an attainment that you achieve and accomplish 
So the goal of knowing is something that each person has to attain for themselves and sort of a microcosm, macrocosm situation. Mankind as a whole also has to raise itself up and attain to this knowledge as a collective. So in these last two clips, uh, Manly Hall is going to make the point that mankind uh, sort of archetypally can't have this information um, and esoteric knowledge given to him. He has to release it from himself. That's like sort of mankind's purpose in nature. Because the, the proof of man's inability to handle knowledge has come merely in this physical world. What we have done in the field of electronics is obvious evidence that we cannot be entrusted with the thunderbolts of Zeus. We cannot be entrusted with powers over energies a million times more splendid than any atomic fission electronic process we know today. We cannot be trusted. This bridge between the objective and the subjective in our own consciousness is guarded. It is guarded by a mutable natural law that we can do absolutely nothing about. And if we would cross this bridge, we must be like the Egyptian entering the wonderful fabled lands of Amentet. We must have the right word to the keeper of the gate. We must be able to answer the right questions, and we must answer them correctly. We must have received that degree of knowledge which enables us to make this transition. Otherwise, uh, we could not be trusted very far or very long. But nature is not locking man away from something that he deserves for the simple reason that the whole process of nature is accomplishing this end. Every living thing, according to the esoteric school, is equally moving towards salvation. There are no lost souls. There is no individual who deserves better than he gets. There is no person who is all ready for knowledge and no one has noticed it. The fact of the matter is, all these processes occur within the individual. And it is only through himself that he can enter the magic world of the esoteric tradition. All right, so here he kind of wraps things up, I think, in a really nice way and kind of lays out the essential theme of the lecture and also the essential challenge of humanity and the essential challenge for the individual, which is to learn the law and obey the law. The problem of humanity and the problem of each individual is that they depart from the law. And they depart from it because essentially they're ignorant from it. And this is an archetypal ignorance. And it's one that each person and that our civilization as a collective both must overcome. So like Buddha taught us, ignorance is the root of suffering. So we suffer because we don't know the law and because we don't know it, we can't obey it. So this frames our problem. We must learn the law and obey the law. And because this is a sort of archetypal process of going from knowing to not knowing, we have to conclude that it's only through a supreme effort that this destiny can be fulfilled. And this, is, this supreme effort is the sort of path of philosophy that the individual goes on. And collectively, this supreme effort is the sort of long-term effort to build a philosophic society. Or in other words, to build a society that's ruled and governed according to philosophic principles. And such a society, uh, by many people throughout the ages, has always been 
articulated as the goal of philosophy and the so-called golden age that's possible for mankind to attain. Uh, so to sum up my interpretation of things, philosophy is a human institution. It's an archetypal thing. And it's deliberately created and designed by the consciousness behind nature or God uh, to be the instrument through which mankind's awakening is ensured. In other words, philosophy is the institution of mankind that is tasked with man's own custodianship of his own evolutionary process. So through philosophy, mankind achieves its destiny or its destined end or fulfills the archetype of itself. And in my interpretation, that's what philosophy was always intended to do. That's what a true interpretation of philosophy is, which I know it's presumptive to, for me to lay out a framework and say this is the only true assumption. But remember, my framework is not my own invention. It's really my uh, based on my analysis and interpretation of this long field, uh, this long lineage, and this long tradition of esoteric philosophy these ideas are not, even though they may be new to the average listener, are not ones that I'm pulling out of nowhere. They're ones that have um, an enormous field of scholarship behind them that supports them. And I encourage you to look into this literature for yourself. Um, and of course, if I was going to pick two books to start with, I would pick uh, Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine and Manley Hall's The Secret Teaching of All Ages. So that's it for this lecture. I hope you guys learned something. I hope you enjoyed the lecture. I'm going to actually upload the lecture notes of this uh, and link it in the description. Um, so these are not a word for word transcription of the lecture, but these are the notes that I put together uh, sort of in preparation of doing this. And uh, what you'll find on there is my analysis, but you'll also see sort of me paraphrasing the different clips that are in the video. So I think it, for people who are very interested in these subjects and are sort of students of esotericism or students of Blavatsky or Manley Hall, uh, I think they'll perhaps benefit from being able to have uh, the written out lecture notes. So I'm going to post those and uh, I'll see you guys next time.